0: The end of term reports are in and in many households this can hold more sway over christmas harmony than whether or not you're on santa's naughty or nice lists but are we right to put so much store in them but which of course i mean the predicted grade not santa's lists obviously hello and welcome to the study sessions podcast i'm nathan the founder of the study buddy and your host in this our third season of the podcast, we're chatting with parents, students and teachers to hear how things are going. Specifically, we're interested in the highs and lows, the trials and tribulations in the run-up to exams in 2022. We'll be covering everything from trouble getting going to burning the candle at both ends, from overzealous and anxious students to underperforming yet nonchalant ones. Through these shared real-world experiences, I hope that you'll take comfort that you're not alone and perhaps more importantly i hope that you'll take away some insights and advice that will help you to support your own team so that they'll not just survive the exams but thrive in the preparation so if you're a parent a carer or a teacher be sure to subscribe this week i'm excited to be talking with david didow David is Senior Lead Practitioner for English at Ormiston Academies Trust. And as well as running his own blog, The Learning Spy, which is widely regarded as one of the most influential education blogs in the UK, he turns his hand to training and consulting. But that's not all. He's also the author of a number of education and cognitive science books, including one of my favourites, Making Kids Cleverer. David, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I think we'll ease in. How about something nice and gentle. Like, what's the point of education?
1: Well, you know, as everyone who has had to do any homeschooling over the pandemic will now realise, a big point of education, of the education system, is to get children out from under your feet so you can get on with some work. <laughs> well, I think that's underappreciated, but it really it's an important point to make, because yeah. especially for parents with young children, it certainly wasn't an easy juggle. So we should always bear that in mind. I don't mean that to be cynical, but I think it's a well-trodden area of debate. And I remember a couple of years ago, the Education Select Committee in the House of Commons decided that they were going to have a debate on what the purpose of education. And there's never a clear answer. I think, you know, that on the one hand, we've got the idea that we're preparing children for the world of work. Another big area is that we're somehow developing children's characters and making them better citizens. And then there's also the idea of cultural transmission, that education is for passing on the hard-won wisdom of society to the next generation. All of these three things, they can seem more or less important depending on who you are and where you are. I would say, and you mentioned that I'd written a book called Making Kids Cleverer. I think that in that book, I argue that if we were to say that the purpose of education is to make children cleverer, then we would achieve probably a lot of those other aims that we think of as important. So for me, that's still where I sit, that if we look at all of the activities in schools as being geared towards enlarging the intellect of all children, no matter their starting position, then I feel quite comfortable with that.
0: Hmm. Because as a parent, I definitely feel those first three, all of them, that everything in there is, is what I would want my child to come out equipped with, ready to tackle whatever it is that life throws at them. And yet all of school and certainly I think for exam year students, we've felt this increasingly over the last two years. All of school seems to be very much more geared to the numbers or letters that you'll come out with. And that, that seems to become a really huge focal point for what it's all about.
1: Yes, I agree. Does it feel right, though, that that's the way that it should be? I think rights, it's a difficult one. I think that because examination success is so important, I really understand why we've become so fixated on grades. But no, I don't think that's a healthy thing.
0: And that fixation, I think, then starts much earlier, doesn't it? It's not just the exam results that you come out with and how well well you've done against your peers in any one-year cohort, but much more then that, I mean, I don't know, it's seemingly from a much earlier age, we're ranking children in terms of their attainment. And I don't know whether it's just my children's school, but now it seems to be that early on in secondary school, there's a grading system that's, if your child were to sit an exam right now, they would get this in their GCSE, which of course is ludicrous if you're a parent of a year seven child.
1: It is ludicrous. Maybe it would be helpful for me to explain a little bit about how that process, you know, what underpins that process, where those kind of numbers and grades come from. So what happens in a normal school year where there has been Key Stage 2 SATs, obviously not been the case for the last couple of years, but in, in a normal school year, the raw scores that children get in their SATs are compared to the raw scores that children in the past have got in their SATs. And the data sets that we have that show the children who started off with a particular raw score will have a percentage of them will have gone on to achieve a particular grade. And so for each raw score it's possible to get in your Key Stage 2 SATs, you get what are called chance statistics, where basically you get a statistical average of your likelihood of getting all of the grades at GCSE. So typically, what's sometimes referred to as a target grade in a school Typically, that's the largest percentage. But if you ever have a look at these chance statistics, it's relatively rare that the target grade has a chance statistic of 50% or above. More often than not, that target grade would be something like, let's say, 35 to 40%. And what that would tell you immediately is that for an individual student, if they've got, let's say, a 40% chance of getting a target grade, they've got a 60% chance of getting anything other than their target grade. So... These statistics hold good at the level of a large enough cohort. So you can say on average, when we look at averages, we can see the children roughly seem to conform to what we'd expect of them. But at the level of an individual, they're not very helpful at all.
0: No, and that doesn't take into account any individual circumstance either then. It's it's simply at key stage two, which is what is that? Is that nine or 10? That actually how they perform in that one test is their flight path through to a target grade for GCSE.
1: Yeah, and the whole concept of a flight path really, I think, really gains currency with the removal of the national curriculum levels. That happened a number of years ago now. And schools experienced what sort of euphemistically was called life after levels, which might have been some sort of, you know, halcyon, beautiful time, but in fact was just chaos with lots of schools scrambling around inventing something that in most cases was worse than what was being replaced and flight paths was very much one of the ideas that came to the fore in that era obviously there were were schools using them before that and they're very much predicated on that idea of looking at those chance statistics and then doing something for which there is no evidential statistical basis whatsoever of then saying well on a year-by-year basis here's where you ought to be on that journey from key stage two to key stage four. That doesn't have any credibility or rationale behind it other than this sort of notion that children's progress is linear, that we go up a step every year so that if you're predicted a grade nine at the end of year 11, that must mean in year 10, you're grade eight. and in. Year nine, you're grade seven. And, and, and actually, you know, there's lots of questions begged there, such as, you know, do we go up a grade a year? Why not two grades a year? Maybe some years we go no grades up and other years we go four or five. You know, who knows? It, it completely depends on individuals. And we've got things like, maybe you could put a link in the description, but there's a lovely blog by a chap called Mike Treadaway on the Education Data Lab site, which tracked the journey between Key Stage 1 and Key Stage 4 for cohorts of students. And this was done a few years ago now. So it was talking in terms of A's and B's and C's rather than the new one-to-nine system. And what that showed really fascinatingly was that, you know, as I said, 66% of students don't get their target grades. They get something else. So only 34% get their target grade. But of those, only a minority of students get their target grade by going in the correct way So the correct way would be this smooth linear progression between key stage one and key stage four. So a really tiny proportion actually follow the flight path that received wisdom or logic might have dictated that they would have gone. So one thing that we can know for pretty certain is that flight paths bear no resemblance to reality.
0: And You can see, I guess, academically, no pun intended, that actually this rolled up big data view can work for governments. It might help shape policy and all of these other kinds of things but i'm not interested in that when i'm reading my daughter's report at the end of the term and i, I must admit on a personal level i'm much more interested in the commentary and i'm much more interested in her effort of assessment and, and what it is that the teachers think that they're doing than the predicted grades but you can't help escape from the fact that actually this feels like a determination of their future
1: I think that's right. I think, and I think beliefs really matter. One of the things that grades do is they're very easily reified. They're turned into things, they're thingified. So students, if they're told enough times that they're, for instance, working at a grade four, they start to become a grade four and they say that of themselves. And, and teachers will say things like, oh, this class are mainly threes, or, you know, that's a real grade five class or that sort of thing and so we do it both ends and I'm sure as parents we end up thinking in similar sorts of ways about our children as well going oh you know maybe there are five in maths or I'm hoping there are six in science or whatever it is that we say they exert this kind of magnetism where they sort of pull us into their orbits and they become self-fulfilling prophecies I think to a large extent where if children hear that their target grade is a four or five or a six and they start to believe that and it becomes then harder to think of themselves as being better than that so I think it definitely can and does create glass ceilings not for everyone not for every child I mean some children will respond to that by going well I'm gonna I'm gonna do a lot better than that but I think that those aren't necessarily the norm Ofsted themselves said a couple of years ago the previous National Director for Education Sean Harford publicly said that fly paths were not only nonsense they were demotivating for students and so when you've got the regulatory body saying things like that on social media then you really have to think as a school what are we doing why are we doing this and particularly as now and this is quite interesting perhaps for parents to know is that neither the dfe nor ofsted are interested in school's internal data they refuse to look at it they recognize it as being inherently unreliable and invalid, and therefore they politely wave it away and say they're not interested. So if those external audiences aren't interested, then we really have to ask ourselves as an education system, why are we potentially doing this? And one of the big reasons that I think exerts the pull to continue with this idea of flight paths and and using grades to report progress is that within education, we say that's what parents want. And I'm a parent as well as a teacher, and all I can say is, it's not what I want. I don't know whether a parent's experience will chime with them. But what would happen when my daughters would come home with their reports is, you know, I'd see, for instance, oh, look, it says there that you're getting a, a six in science. Is that any good? I don't know. I've no idea if that's good or bad. And so the first question I would ask is, what's everyone else getting? And if everyone else is getting a seven, then six is bad. But if everyone else is getting a five, six is good because I've got no frame of reference for that sort of thing. So, what I immediately do is try to compare that against something else to try and work out whether or not the information I'm getting is good. So, the fact that I'm having to do that is a real clue that there's an inherent sort of meaninglessness to the numbers. We often think we know what they mean. And clearly, nine's really good and one's really bad. You know, anyone can work that out. But what's the difference between five and six in a way that we can do anything with? I think most parents and indeed most students wouldn't know.
0: No, I completely agree. I think there's a uselessness in it all because I don't know what that means in a broader context, as you say, a six or a seven, but also... What does that mean for my own child? Is there an easy step to progress? Are they fulfilling their potential? Are they sort of selling themselves short? And so many of these other questions that aren't addressed by sort of the label of a, a number or a letter.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, Nathan, and I've thought about this a fair bit, and I'd love to hear from your listeners as to whether they disagree with me. I think parents want three things. I think, firstly, we want to have a sense of how well our students are performing academically. We do want that. So we want to know what they're doing well and whether or not there's anything we can help them improve with. I think that's something that we want. And I think we also want to know whether or not they're trying the hardest, you know, what kind of effort they're making. And as, as you'll know, lots of schools report effort with a grade as well. And that's quite interesting. So a lot of schools use a one to four system for effort grade. So one really good for hopeless and so within that, if you look at what school's documentation that comes with their, their, their reports would say, is that they would normally say that three is satisfactory. You know, they, the students are making a satisfactory effort. But all parents that I've ever spoken to, and certainly all students, read three as big rubbish. So if you get a three, there's a real problem. I do that with my own daughters. They come back and they've got a, if they have got a free for effort, I'll be like, well, what's going wrong? And they're saying, but it's fine, except they're not saying that. They go, I don't know, what is going wrong? And so then that precipitates a conversation with the teacher where you go, what are they doing wrong? And they go, well, you know, actually they could be doing this, this, and that. And so it kind of prompts, you know, unless you're getting ones or twos the whole time, you know, it prompts these unlooked for, unwanted conversations where you're know, actually being able to say either, you know, it's okay or it's not okay. And if it's not okay, these are the things that need to happen. I think it would be preferable to trying to grade it in terms of like wonderful to terrible, just acceptable or not acceptable, I think is fine. And then the third thing that we want is to know whether our children are happy. And I don't know of any schools that grade happiness. And I guess you could, but I think we recognize that as probably being a bit crass. And so we're not really tempted to do that. But it is something that I think as a parent, that's maybe that's the most important thing for many of us
0: i think it would be interesting to see sort of a a rounded metric how as you say given the point of education as you as you mentioned earlier isn't just about the intellect the cleverness the grades that they get in their exams but also these other things actually i think it would be really interesting some sort of view on how prepared they are for the world against a number of different factors that could be a whole new industry
1: Yeah, I mean, there are some companies that do sort of tests on that sort of thing. So M, I can't remember what it stands for They're a database company that's run by the uh, University of Durham, do a skills test. And quite often it's done at the same time as cognitive ability tests in year seven. And that sort of basically tells you kind of how organised students are, which I think is recognised as being at least, you know, having some value as a metric for, you know, predicting some of those, the effects of those soft skills, and what they might have on academic outcomes and indeed work performance later on
0: so as you say I mean these become the much more sort of demonstrably useful things to parents and as you said a moment ago also to the students because I think what I'm finding increasingly certainly with my daughter is that she is comparing herself to her other friends or making sort of summative assessments based on well I'm this and you're that based on what's happening in the grades and as you say this combination of predicted and target. But it's also crept into common parlance, hasn't it? Oh, they're an ASAR student, which sort of it becomes a shortcut for everything more than what it is that they had achieved in an exam. And I just can't help but think that there's a motivating factor, perhaps for some who are at the top of the scale. So, oh, my target is an eight, and I'm currently on a seven. If I work just a bit harder, I might. But if you're not at that level, if you're at... The, I don't know, the threes, the fours, maybe even the fives, if you don't think actually you're in reach of the big prize money, would you really just step back and go, well, it's clearly not for me?
1: Well, maybe. I mean, I think that what students need is they need to, the answer to three questions, which are, where am I right now? Where am I trying to get to? And how do I get there? If they have answers to those three questions, then they're going to be able to progress within the subjects that they're studying. And the issue with a grade is that it doesn't provide any answer to those questions at all. But absolutely, what it does do is it feeds back to children a lot of the time that there's no point. You might as well cut your losses and just accept where you are. So, an awful lot of the unintended consequence of the data systems that schools use is that students either set their sights lower and just scale back their ambition, or they give up entirely and choose not to play the game. Neither of which. Can be justifiable, I think, in terms of outcomes. And I think that's the issue with these grades. They're such a blunt instrument. There's no subtlety to them at all that they're bound to have these unintended consequences. We can't really control that because everybody thinks they know what they mean. Whereas, as we were discussing earlier, we don't really, you know, clearly the top end is better than the bottom end. But beyond that, what it specifically means, really hard to say.
0: I think it would be fascinating to see actually those predicted or target grades. I realise that I'm using them interchangeably when I actually don't think they are interchangeable. I think, as you say, one of them's based on this set at Key Stage 2. But if that target was based much more on an individual conversation with my child or with the individual child that was being, where do you want to be? I mean, it doesn't even necessarily need to be tied to a career idea, but what is it you want and are you capable of getting there? What do you need to do? Sort of a gap analysis, I guess, as we might realise from other careers that we have.
1: It's the same issue that the, if your ambition is to get an A at A level or, you know, an 8 at GCSE, what does it mean? There's not enough useful detail there on its own. So you need to do a lot more to then find out about what that actually means in terms of different subjects. Obviously, some people respond quite well to that kind of goal setting that they'll really strive to achieve an aim that they set for themselves. But I think that because it works for a few, it would be a great mistake to think it worked for the many. And I think that in the majority of cases, it doesn't provide any kind of helpful level of detail. The other thing that we've danced around, and we haven't really talked about, Nathan, is the fact that, you know, what a grade actually is. There's two things to say here. Firstly, there's the grades that you actually get when you have national examinations in GCSE or A level. They are post hoc constructions. And what I mean by that is they don't have any reality or any meaning. What happens is every candidate in the subject sits the exam and then the examiners mark the scripts. Each script is given a raw mark and all of those raw marks are rank ordered. So the, the person with the highest marks is at the top of the rank order and the person with the lowest marks are at the bottom. And when we look at how many people sat the exam and how well they did on it, then grade boundaries are agreed statistically based on the performance of the cohort that sat in the exam. So we know, for instance, back in 2019, the average for across different subjects for getting a grade nine was the top 2.7 percent. So what a grade nine is literally is what the top 2.7 percent of that cohort achieved. It doesn't mean anything beyond that. It's just what they happen to do on the day. And then grade eight, the boundary for that would be set a little bit lower and seven and six and so on until you get all the way down to the bottom and to grade one. And so when schools use grades before those national exams, like, I don't know, like you've done a piece of history homework and I've given it a B or you've handed in some algebra and I've said it's a six. What does that mean? It's basically with the best will in the world. it's teachers comparing the performance of their students and going well you know they're about here and this one's better than that one and at the same time trying to hang on to the idea that you know I think basically kids when they do this in an exam situation they're probably going to performance of the particular grade might look like that but it's all guesswork it's holding a finger in the wind and so one of the reasons I feel you know, genuinely confused as somebody that feels that I know quite a bit about data in education, genuinely confused by my my own children's reports from schools, is that when I'm told that they're working at a B in in their A levels or they're, you know, they're their predicted a seven in their GCSE, or whatever, I genuinely don't know what the teachers mean. The only way I could find out would be by sitting down with them and saying, talk me through it. You were saying right at the top of the show, Nathan, that what you look for in the reports you get from schools is that narrative.
0: It is really difficult, isn't it? Because as you say, if, if you've got the six in the maths test or the chemistry test, or if you were to sit this exam along with that year's cohort, then you would have got a six because one person's not going to skew the data. But in your cohort, actually you could end up in a different place entirely. You say everything's so relative. It's a crazy metric.
1: It is. And we know, for instance, this year... If examinations go ahead, inshallah, we know the grade boundaries are going to be significantly lower for this cohort of students because of the effects of COVID. So what that will look like, we don't yet know. We'll get more detail on that on the 7th of February. And we won't know for certain until after the examination cycle is finished and children have all sat the exams and, you know, an off qual and the exam boards will work out exactly where they should be setting those grade boundaries. It's really difficult, I think, for parents to get any kind of insight into, and that you sometimes hear things like, oh, in order to get a seven in a maths paper, you only have to get 50% right. And that might be true. But what that would mean, if that were true, it would mean that getting 50% right on that paper was actually quite hard, and that most people didn't. And what you could do, obviously, is you could have a maths paper that was easier, where many more people got higher marks, but then the grade boundaries will just go up. We haven't really got a way in advance of distinguishing the difficulty of different exams. The only way we can do that is post hoc, after the fact. And the only way we know is by comparing how children did. If children found it harder, then it's considered the exam was more difficult and therefore the grade boundaries need to come down.
0: Of course, you can only do it after the fact if what you're doing is ranking the cohort comparatively. So if you want your 2.7% to get a nine, then you need to do it after the fact, because you'll never know how many are going to get it. But if, and I think this is a surprise to many people as they look at results for the first time, is that actually would look at this and think, well, I just presumed that getting a nine meant you got 90% or more. Actually, so then if you had a much larger group of children getting nines, then it's because actually they were really clever that year. and They deserve to get the mark that they get if you start to compare it against previous years, that works?
1: Well, it doesn't, it doesn't. Great effort is made to try and prevent grade inflation. And the idea of grade inflation is year on year on year, we typically have record results. We've got good reason to believe that grades are really hard to stop from inflating and they need quite a lot of pressure exerted on them to keep the currency the same year on year. Now, for the last two years, we've had unprecedented grade inflation. Through the process of center assess grades and then teacher assess grades last year. As listeners may well remember, there was the misbegotten attempt to use the algorithm to try and control that in 2020 with fairly predictable responses. And, you know, it's worth saying the algorithm wasn't the problem, it was the way it was applied that was the problem. But anyway, we'll not go into that. But what we have created over the last two years is... Because of the unprecedented inflation, and I think, you know, rightly you can be arguing that, God, those kids deserved a break. You know, they really, bless them, they had a really tough time. I'm really sympathetic with that. But what we've made now is that for this current year, this year group are going to be sold down the river. They're going to be comparatively much, much worse off. There are going to be comparatively far fewer nines this year than last year or the year before. And that's not because the cohort are less intelligent. It's because, fingers crossed, we're going to do more to control grade inflation. And, you know, that seems unfair.
0: But also you're comparing apples and bananas, aren't you? Because the way that they've sat an exam this year will be based on that metric. The previous two years, for very good reasons and all of that, are based on what the teachers or centres had assessed the children at being the level that they were at. And on a good day, as we've heard from previous guests, there's a level of optimism, not in any way, suggesting that teachers are inflating their grades willy nilly. I just don't think that was happening across the board.
1: No, I don't think that's true either. It's a natural human thing. And I think that as teachers, all you can do is go, well, you know, I think they probably this is what they're capable of. And that's entirely reasonable to say that. Now, what we know is and I know this firsthand as a a teacher is that I'd be sometimes super confident about certain kids doing well on exams and then they'd have a bad day and I've definitely had as well kids that i would kind of written off as no hopers who absolutely stunned me and did really really well it is unpredictable we decided to take away that predictability because you know for all of the reasons that existed and say that everybody was going to achieve the best that they could which is fine except we kept those grades which used to mean one thing so from 2019 and before they meant one thing And then in 2020 and 2021, they actually mean something else, but they've got the same name. And so, how does anyone know to compare what's going on?
0: No, I 100% agree. I'm sat here with fingers crossed, actually, everything crossed that the exams take place. Although, for anyone who listened to the podcast last week, where I talked to my daughter, who's taking her GCSEs in the summer, she wasn't so keen. I think she's hoping that they might not take place. But if they don't take place, then we're asking teachers again to likely to assess the grades, whether it's based on a number of submitted assessments or mocks. However that will work out, the details will be found out. But how do you think those grades will then sort of appear? I mean, this feels like a leading question, because presumably we'll see an increased number of Nines and eights and top scores again, were we?
1: Yeah, no, almost certainly. That's almost certainly what we'll see. And again, you know, if you're a student this year thinking the exams might be coming, I can completely understand why you might prefer that they didn't. So, my eldest daughter, who's in year 13, obviously, you know, when she was in year 11, that was 2020. And so she didn't sit in the exams, she was just written off at the end of March and didn't go to school again until September, the following academic year. She's missed out on that experience of what that might be like. and she she's I think she'd probably agree with your daughter that she, she she'd be quite happy were the exams to be cancelled except, you know then. I think the experience that we had last year, so my youngest daughter's in year 12 this year. So she was last year's year 11 2021 cohort. and her experience of not sitting exams was really horrific, that basically every day was a high stakes, high pressure, situation where she had to prove herself again and again and again and it knocked her self-confidence and her mental health like nothing you could imagine and I know that one of the huge criticisms level of exams is that they're really stressful and that's true but I don't think they're nearly as stressful as what we had last year so I'd be rooting for almost anything other than that the year before the CAGS that wasn't stressful at all that was, that was incredibly relaxed for students they did nothing at all.
0: Although ironically, actually, we did hear from a number of students who'd sort of felt completely unjust because they'd had their foot off the gas for two years of a GCSE course thinking, yeah, it's fine because I've got two months, I'll just revise or cram like yeah. madness and pull it out of the bag so they didn't feel that they had an opportunity to show well i know mean, it's hard to be very sympathetic if you've not done an awful lot of work during the year but you can definitely see that i mean that's that's the system isn't it it's geared to that or it always was geared to that that you have this it one is. moment in time where you're going yeah. to be judged against how you perform on the day
1: yeah i completely accept how they feel hard done by for sure
0: and so what kind of advice, I guess, uh, from where we are now, jokingly, parents looking at the grades and the reports and students, again, looking at them and thinking about mocks as they come up and motivation, demotivation and, and what it means for the final exam. Do you have any sort of final thoughts and advice that parents could take on board, perhaps something that you do with your own children in talking to their children about the grades and how best to use them as a force for good.
1: The most useful thing that you could probably do as a parent is to interrogate the school. I don't mean that sounds like, uh, you know, under thumb screws or bright lights, but just to get in touch and go, can you tell me specifically what my child has to do in order to improve in each of the subjects they're taking? Because if they can't tell you that, then you're helpless and if they can then great you can crack on and do those things so lots of teachers lots of schools lots of departments will have really great granular information that you can use to drill into exactly what it is that they know and don't know and I think what parents might find it very useful to do is to start a conversation with schools where we say Do you know, actually, what you communicate in reports could be a great deal more useful. There are alternatives out there than just reporting with grades and trying to, as a system, as a community, trying to explore more of those, I would be a huge advocate for. But just if you're a parent and you're looking at a report and you're trying to, you know, how do we get a better grade? You know, your best bet is to buy some revision materials and get your children to work through them and talk to you about how they're getting better at the content of those revision materials. And at least you can see and track kind of what the progress they're making against the actual likely content of the exams they're going to be sitting.
0: I thought that was really, really interesting. Actually, quite an eye-opener. And I don't know whether to be reassured or panicked that a teacher with David's reputation is unsure about the point of these target grades. And I can't help but feel a bit bemused as to why schools use them with parents and with students, of course. And you could see how they can be used in a motivating way. If you applied yourself just a little bit more, you could well be on your way to a seven or an eight or a nine. But there are surely other more effective ways of doing that. And also I get that it's a feature of schooling, that exams are graded and then students are ranked accordingly. But I am questioning more and more how appropriate that is. I mean, do they really tell people, colleges, universities, employers and so on, what they need to know? But one thing does seem clear. Using them along the school journey is misleading at best and undermining and demotivating at worst. I mean, imagine being told at 10 or 11 years old what it is that you're going to amount to at the end of your secondary school, which as David explains it, is precisely what these predictions are doing. Essentially odd, given that actually two thirds of those predictions are off the mark in any case. I can't help but think that this data is nerdily interesting, but seems so horribly blunt when used on an individual basis with our children. And as David said, what we parents really need to know is actually quite simple and probably not easily measured by a number or letter. We want to know, are they doing well? And we probably want to know if they could or should be doing more. And that's the kind of conversation that happens at parents' evenings for many of us. But even then, I think there's a tendency that we end up talking about grades, certainly we do. Thinking about it now, I would much sooner that Emily's target grades were determined by her, perhaps in conjunction with a sensible conversation with her teachers. But not only is that going to be much more meaningful than rolled up aggregated data that's been applied to her, but surely she'd feel a sense of ownership as well, of being the master or mistress of her destiny. And isn't that ultimately what our children need to help drive them on to want to do their best? a belief that they can sway the outcome. My thanks to David for finding the time to chat and to you for listening. If you'd like to be on a future episode and share how things are going or perhaps just talk about something that's playing on your mind, please do drop me an email. The address is hello at thestudybuddy.com. And if you're looking for ways that you can support your own young person to fulfill their potential through revision, then why not head over to the StudyBuddy website? There you'll find a whole host of information about our innovative time management and study organizing approach. And you'll also find a blog packed full of useful articles, hints, and tips. To find out more, why not make a beeline for thestudybuddy.com? I hope that you enjoyed this episode, certainly as much as I did. And if you did, I wonder if you'd mind leaving us a review, and if it's not too cheeky to ask, a five-star rating. It all helps us to reach other parents who, just like the rest of us, are looking to make some sense out of all of this in the run-up to exams. Of course, don't forget to share the link to this and other episodes on your social media weapon of choice. It's all greatly appreciated. There'll be another episode in the new year. So please don't forget to follow and subscribe to the Study Sessions podcast.